Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Best Deal episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about the legendary best deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person executing it. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor possible. Well, Scott, awesome to have you here. Yeah, today. it's good to be here. I'm glad we yeah. finally made it happen. Yeah, I am good about it. For anybody tuning in, this is the first episode of The Real Estate Nerds, where today we're geeking out on some deals with Scott Sutherland. He's a real estate agent and real estate investor extraordinaire here in the Austin area. If it's your first time joining us, buckle up. We cut the fluff and we're only getting into the nit and gritty of the hard hitting facts of deals, right? So we're looking at what are the operating agreements? What are the numbers? For anything else, go to Robert Kiyosaki. Look at those guys. If you're looking at high level 10,000 feet up stuff to put you to sleep at night, we're going to be getting into what you really need to know to know whether a deal's good or not. So just to kick things off here, Scott, would you just share with us a little bit about, you know, how you got into real estate and what made you fall in love with it and and start doing it? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been full time in real estate now for about eight years. And for me, it all came together when I was a product of the stock market back in the late 90s, kind of the pre-dot-com what many people refer to as a lost generation of stock investing. We had a few good years, but overall we had a kind of a flat decade. And I I followed along with Motley Fool and some of the other investing strategists in the stock market. And we were all trying, you know, we were all chasing some of the stock high flyers and and the dot-coms of the era and, and trying to make our fortune on the stock market. And most of us did not succeed in those endeavors. But what I did learn from the Motley Fool was the power of compound interest. And that if you could figure out a way to consistently return, you know, double digits annually, that you would be quite wealthy in a short amount of time. Yeah. So having failed to do that in the stock market, I, I it kind of uh, faded into my memory. And then one day I come back from a long vacation, a little bit of a sabbatical time period back in 2008 when the stock market was at its worst and I was looking for my next venture. And I started analyzing real estate returns in the Austin market, looking at rental rates and purchase prices and cash flow ROI. And I was shocked to see that the ROIs for some of the investments were, you know, 25, 35% on a lever basis. So it kind of pulled me back into my memory of the Motley Fool and all the, Too good, the right? compounding. Too yeah. Good I, true, right? well, that, and honestly, that was my initial reaction. I thought this can't be right. I sent it out to a bunch of people and, and I said, is this, am I doing this correctly? And they said, yeah, those numbers look correct. And, and shockingly, in spite of the fact that these numbers were so good, everyone was afraid to invest. And this kind of goes back to the buffetism of be brave when everyone else is scared and be you know, scared when everyone else is brave. So we decided to be brave in a down market. And uh, that was back in 2009 and 10. And it really kicked things off for us. That was kind of the impetus for my foray into real estate back in that period and still doing it today. So is everybody brave or scared right now? I would say that everyone is brave right now, which so is which is terrifying. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. you see like thirty percent returns. Somebody's shooting a deal over you and says, "I can get you a thirty percent return on this." Those returns are long gone. The market today requires far more creativity, and honestly, there are times when you have to just 
you have to sit on the sidelines and, and just, just hoard cash and wait for your moment. In my opinion, it's much better to have nothing to do than be tied up in a bunch of unprofitable projects. Yeah. So. Well, for sure, right? Because then you're ready to act, right? Right. You're ready, you're ready to say, like, I'm going to make, I'm waiting until the time is right for me to get in instead of trying to say, I'm going to force a deal into it. And like what I see is, you know, I'm a real estate investor and an asset protection attorney. And the pieces of what I see time and time again is you see guys that will pitch off deals that are 30%. Mm-hmm. And I say, fantastic. Great. Well, actually, let's see what the deal actually is. And how much of that is, you know, really what the basis of this show is about is saying, cool, awesome. I'm not going to say that just because somebody says it's 30%, that is BS. Right. I want to see the actual deal and show me where the numbers are coming out and what are projections and what are the projections actually based off of. Right. Because, you know, projections can be pretty much anything. Some are good, some are bad, right? So how do we actually look into that? Right. And overall, like, what's an investment strategy that makes sense to not just a small handful of people, but actual real professionals, like, attorneys, CPAs, and professional investors that would all look at that and say, that's great. Right. That actually looks like a real deal. Right. And not look like one that's just somebody trying to scout money off of an investor, right? Absolutely. And and at the end of the day, you've got to search for the best of what's out there and then determine if that is good enough for you or whether you'd rather preserve your time and preserve your capital for a future opportunity. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to sit with you today is because I wanted to learn more about how is it that you're thinking differently about because it's because if the case was that everybody looking at deals when you were all could see 30 percent returns, everybody would have been doing those deals because nobody in their right mind doesn't take an asset backed security and invest on a 30 percent return. All right. Right. Yeah. So how is it that you're and looking through that? What is it that you think like has you thinking differently that's been effective in your investing? You know, I remember at the same year that we, and my wife is also a real estate agent, and it just so happens that the year that we started into, we started dating in 2008 and got married in 2010. So along with starting this new real estate business, I was also starting a relationship. And today she's, you know, my business partner and my life partner. So we had a lot of, she and I had a lot of conversations about whether or not we thought we were right or not. And just kind of checking each other to make sure we weren't, you know, jumping into something. You know, why is everyone else not doing this if it's such a brilliant idea? You know, so you tend to, you know, there's that herd mentality. I know everyone feels better doing what everybody else is doing, but it doesn't always result in the best outcomes. So her question. So at the time we were buying duplexes in Austin for $85,000 a duplex. The same duplexes had been worth twice that a couple years prior. So they were on the decline, you know, and there's, you'll hear people say, never try and catch a falling knife. And so that was the question is, are we trying to catch a falling knife? And my, the way my wife phrases, she said, I said, you know, these are worth 160 and now they're, now we can buy them for 80. And she said, well, what if they keep going down? And my response was that I don't care if someone says they're worth zero because the cash flow is the cash flow and it's based upon what you have into the asset. And we were going to achieve 30% returns on our input. And the only thing that could change that is if we had a reversion in rental rates. And there was, there's no, at least in our market, there's been no historic reversion of rental rates as far back as we have records. So we just felt that we would just hold them forever. It just seemed like a good bet, regardless of the, of what other, what value other people placed on them. Yeah. Well, to me, what that sounds like too is like, it's your worst case scenario. Right. Like if my worst case scenario is that I have a hold on to this asset and I have a 30 cap return on it, fine. 
I'll do that all day. Right. I don't care. Right. right. That's super smart, especially in investment psychology. We are, or we always tend to look at as saying we are coming up against something that there's a high level of fear, right? Which is going to happen to all of us in times of our lives when we're anytime we're making a big decision. It becomes exceptionally more difficult if everybody else is all sharing the fear at the same time. Cause now there's, if you say you're different, you're arrogant. But you might be arrogant in the right way, right? Like that comes from the same well, right? Right. And I think a lot of times for my personal life as a, you know, entrepreneur in a few different businesses and doing really wild stuff. Like I bought my first investment property while I was in law school and running a transmission auto repair while I'm going to law school and working for the district attorney, right? All of those are crazy, right? But the difference is saying like everybody else was too afraid, but I could say, well, my worst case scenario is X. Right. And I'm okay with that. Right. And that's really what it is. And if I'm wrong, it's very recoverable to get back on track. But if I'm right, I graduate from law school with no debt. And that puts me way ahead of everybody else. So it's minimum risk if you know what your maximum downside risk is. So I just wanted to underscore that for as, as a piece to say, like, that is the difference in my experience between people that are successful and not successful is that they're willing to take risks, but they understand that they're okay being wrong, but they know what how wrong they can be. And in your case, right. it was almost like a no-brainer. Right. My wrong is that I'm fabulously wealthy, right. but just in a different way. Wrong is still very good. Yeah. Very good outcome. Right. And we look at investment property. We always try and have a plan A, B, and C. And we'll say, well, you know, we try and go down every what we consider likely negative scenario and then have a contingency plan. And then once we're comfortable with all those scenarios and our response to them and the probability of each, then we jump in. Yeah. And then if you can also mitigate some of those risks through various types of diversification, whether it's, you know, multiple properties, multiple markets being, you know, you know, stock, stock versus real estate diversification. So cool. So we try and uh, keep things in multiple areas. That being said, I also am a firm believer that you should have all your eggs in one basket. From a standpoint of the more you know about a given business, the more effective you can be in it. So it's great to diversify within assets, but I also believe in sticking with what you're good at and what you're experienced with and being very cautious as you move into areas where you're there's a high level of variability from your experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, you should do what you're good at. That's where you're going to have the highest returns is where you're putting in your own brains into something to figure out stuff better than other people. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I know that you do really well is with your Airbnb rental type mm-hmm. of business, right? Because even in that market, if you say, well, Scott's actually too concentrated inside of what he has owning for real estate. Wait, is that really true? Because not all these real estate pieces are really the same. Like a vacation rental is really can be based off of saying, what's my cash flows associated with that? And that's actually dependent upon tourism, which we know is really strong. And then I have other rental income that's here that's really facilitating, you know, whatever type of class of income earner. And maybe that's really strong unless a bunch of people die. And if a huge amount of people die, we probably have other problems. Right. So I'm not really too worried about <laughs> like that end up coming to be the case. Right. Right. So like even inside of an asset class, right, they're not all made equal. It, what we would probably need to test, I'm just kind of spitballing here, is that what you want to test inside of that is saying, like, what are my assumptions that would make this asset actually fail to perform, right? Like, right. if a bunch of people died, all of my rentals might go down. But then all of a sudden, probably 
all real estate prices are probably going down too. So are you just not going to invest in real estate because of all that? Okay, probably not, right? right? So like what are the indicators that we would know for like let's just say like something that'd be like rental income? Where would you see like markets shifting or other things besides real estate prices that would indicate to you, hey, I should be really starting to get worried about you know, sure. Airbnb. Well, a great example would be, so our biggest annual, and I'll use Airbnb and short-term rental synonymous. I think a lot of people just say Airbnb now. It's kind of like a bed and <laughs> breakfast. It's an air bed and breakfast, right? Yeah. So South by Southwest is the largest single event for Airbnb in Austin and has been uh, as long as I've been doing it. This last year, we actually saw a significant softening in demand during South by Southwest for the first time in a very long time. And I believe the reason for that is that the commercial construction, large-scale commercial construction like hotels, is a longer lead time process. You know, By the time you permit and build a hotel, it can be two, three, four years to get it on the ground and, and operating. So for a long time, the smaller, more nimble movers like myself and the other Airbnb owners were taking advantage of that. But no window of large profits exists for any extended period of time because people will move in to absorb it. So that's what we're seeing now is that the construction is, you know, catching up on a lot of the hotels. Some of the apartments are starting to actually bring vacation rentals into their portfolio. So they'll have, you know, 90% of their units will be traditional apartment units and the other 10% may be, you know, furnished almost like a hotel. So they might be operating 10% like a hotel Airbnb, 90% like an apartment. So we're seeing those rates come down. And I think the biggest risk is to people who are buying Airbnb assets at current market prices based upon historic rental projections. If those soften, you know, if, if you bought a duplex five years ago for $200,000 and it's worth $800,000 today, you really don't have a lot to worry about. I mean, you have almost no debt, you have very little overhead, and even you can absorb a reduction in income. But if, however, you buy one today at 800 and the hotels continue to expand and, the, and they absorb that demand and rates drop, you don't have a lot of a lot of room to absorb a reduction in, in income. Hmm. So that's that's why it's really hard to buy property right now and and it makes my job challenging not just for my own you know for my own portfolio but for the clients that I represent. They come to me and say, hey, what's the best way to cash flow in the Austin market today? It's you know I get that question a lot. And yeah. and, and I will say that it's it's harder now than it's ever been. It requires even more creativity than it ever has. Well, it's also like just knowing what I know about you. Like, you're, aren't you involved in other pieces that you've pivoted off to? Like knowing sure. that uh, that's me, like with larger, I think you're doing some work out in Houston, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We're doing some new construction. We're doing some rehab work where we do long-term rental, short-term rental. You know, we go, you know, we go where the money is and where the, where the opportunity is and it changes. We're starting to expand into some secondary markets on the fringe of Austin that have the cash flow, a little better cash flow metrics than what we're seeing in the city. You know, I always refer to the cash flow as the bird in the hand and the appreciation as the two in the bush. And I, I would prefer the cash flow over the appreciation because it's, it's far more predictable. So we're starting to kind of expand out into some of those markets that have a little higher cash flow metrics and possibly at the expense of future appreciation. Hmm. And so, I mean, the one thing we just talked about before was saying like you should stick where your expertise is, right? Right. So, but typically we're only acquiring one expertise at a time with whatever asset we're interacting with, right? Mm -hmm. But now 
we just heard you say, mm-hmm. and we're actually in a bunch of different types of things. Right. 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 So is your path into that saying, I'm going to get really good at one thing, then I'm going to add one more type of asset class where I sure. maybe have friends, family, or other people I know and respect that are in it, and then learn that one, and then is that the way you're stacking skill sets? Absolutely. Yeah. Over time, I, I'll refer to it as, as you know clubs in your bag. I mean, it's it's still the same sport. You're just learning different shots. So I started in what I considered to be a very rudimentary form of, of real estate investing, which was buying rental properties, cleaning them up and renting them. You know, it's very light work when it comes to the rehab. Might just be, you know, repainting it and changing the flooring out. It was so it was real straightforward. But there's still a lot to learn even at, at that stage of investing. You learn how to find tenants, you learn how to manage the property, how to manage the repairs. So once you feel like you can do most of those things in your sleep, then you can graduate to, you know, more and more complex projects. But and I think that's what I was trying to express when I said, you know, do what you're you know, stick with what you're good at and and but at the same time, don't stop growing. You know, if you if you see an opportunity and you think I've done seventy percent of that already, that's probably a really good place for you to go because you're there's there's thirty percent still to learn. But if you spend all your time in as a landlord and then suddenly you decide to go open a restaurant, you may be stepping outside of, of your area of expertise and may need some additional resources there. Yeah, and by additional resources, first thing that pops in my head is like can I join into this venture with somebody else who's already run through it a bunch of times so I can learn from them? Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. So like don't go on your own for almost anything if it's your first deal. Right. Did you say? Okay. Well, yeah, I would, I would say that it depends on your personality. Um, I worry more about losing other people's money. I care more about other people's money when I'm responsible for it than I do for my own. I can deal with... What a with, nice guy. I am. I'm a giver. <laughs> what a, I'm a giver. What a nice guy over here. I'm going to tell you where to send your money. <laughs> I'm going to take care of your money. I am. Just put it with me. I am. I like it more than my own. Absolutely. <laughs> no, but it's yeah. true. I mean, no one wants to... I mean, you can come up with your own personal ras- rationalizations for your, losing your own money, and you can kind of put that to bed, but I feel that you know losing someone else's tends to linger a little longer. God, it stinks. Uh, the responsibility of that. So yeah. um, I think that I... On the one hand, some of my initial forays into rental property, initially I had intended to buy two or three duplexes just on my own, you know, extinguish what capacity I had and do my own thing. And then I ended up partnering with some people. Instead, I showed the numbers to some, some friends and family and, and next thing you know, we, we had a fund put together and started buying for a group. And I think it really, it was really good for me because it accelerated my learning curve. It really, because I was taking on, rather than buying two or three and just kind of walking, we, we ran, we bought a dozen, you know, properties in, in a couple months. So it was fever. It felt like a, a, a very fast run in the beginning. So on the one hand, for me, it was good to have partners because it, it elevated the rate of growth and the kind of the intensity of the challenge. But very quickly, I also realized that I was able to, I could have done it on my own. You know, I think I think I was leaning a little bit onto the expertise of my fellow investors as well. I felt like by having them as partners that What's I What's the could, motivation behind leaning on other people for their expertise? What's behind that, do you think? Because that's something we probably all go to, right? We don't right. know if we can do it or not. Right. So we want to do that. So what's behind that? I think part of it is just having a – I think it's creating a safety net a little bit. What's wrong with that? For you just getting going, right? 
get there's, a little prove out a little track record. Yeah, there's, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I think that it's a great way to build networks. You know, people making mm, money together. Point. So it's been invaluable, but I think the other thing is that you also need to take chances on your own to step out there and, and, you know, be willing to wrap your arms around an opportunity and, and just say, you know, I can handle this. What's the downside risk if we don't step out on our own? It's lost time and lost opportunity. And is it just, is it much more difficult to try to for you to rally people together behind a particular asset? Like you can move quicker, capture opportunities, otherwise would slip away. Or is it like, is it more personal too? Like if you're never out on your own, do you really believe that you're actually the one that's in control of creating what you want for your life? I'm seeing you're nodding right there, but like it's something for you. It sounds like it's something deeper. Like it's like, I know that I'm capable, like I'm capable of doing it. Right. I think that. There is, there's a lot of satisfaction from knowing that you could go it alone, but that you're, but you choose to do it with others. Yeah. You know, I think we want, we want to know that we have that independence, Mm -hmm. that need to take it all on, but then there's also the team side of it. You know, I, you know, when I look back at my history, like from sports, I was always kind of a soloist. You know, my sports were, you know, trail running and triathlons and, you know, all solo endeavors. So I think that's my reflex is to want to do it all. Hmm. So I think that's just my natural inclination, but I've realized a lot of rewards from partnering. Yeah, there definitely is. There's definitely huge rewards in partnering, right? Especially we're talking about leveraging other people's brains and experience into what's going on. There's definitely an uptick in like a learning curve there. But there's also something that you, from you know my experience with it as well is that there's a certain freedom that comes from knowing that you can put a full deal together by yourself. Because when you're able to be self-sufficient, that's when you're actually truly free as an individual. Because then it's not saying that I ever have to have anybody, but I can make a choice about who do I want to do things with which is very different than I have to have certain people. Like if you ever have like, this is something I think everybody can relate to is that you can have the experience of like a salesperson that comes to you and they want you to buy a product. You're almost guaranteed that they're never going to sell it to you. Right. But if they're highly engaged in the product itself, that this is a very cool product, but they're detached from whether you buy it or not, then there's a high sale there. And I think the difference between those two things fundamentally relates to saying, do I have to have somebody else do something for me? Or can I be in a pursuit that I know is worthy in and of itself and be successful in that? And I think that's where the freedom comes from. And that also makes you like a more, not only an internal sense of freedom and independence, but also probably even a more likable person. Like how much do we like it when people like latch on to us about like, we need you to do this deal. Do you ever right. do deals with people that come to you and like, Hey, I need you to be in on this. Right. Yes. Or, <laughs> yeah. You have to come do this with me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Of course. Yeah. It's like, no, I don't know. Immediately when you come to me and be like, Oh, I need you to come in here and do, I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> how this is not right from the very beginning, you know? Right. It's like somebody saying that like, I need you to come on a date with me. <laughs> be like, that does not sound like a good time if that's how we're starting things on <laughs> what's going on. Right. No, but I, I agree. It's the knowledge of knowing that you can manage the business on your own. Uh, gives you the freedom to choose what you do above and beyond that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's much like having enough passive income to do what you want to do. And then anything you do above and beyond that is, is done for other reasons. It's not done to put food on the table. It's done 
you know, out of, you know, passion or interest for the project itself or the people involved. Yeah. Something, right? right? I mean, I think we've all seen time and time again that it's like the ideas of financial freedom really just bring higher class problems, which is what do I do with my life? <laughs> you know, at some, at the end of the day, right? Right. So I think that's one of the pieces I want to go into. Do you think like, right, do you want to go and we can jump into actually some of the deal like analysis? Or sure. Like, what do you think? Sure. Um, so one of the things that this podcast is based on is going to be showing here's where I saw opportunities that come mm-hmm. up. Here's why I saw them. And I think other people like didn't see them. And then, you know, here's what, you know, the insides of those types of deals, you know, look like today or where the opportunities would rely. Sure, sure. And what we originally talked about, we were putting this together was doing something along the lines of a, a best, best investment or my favorite investment, something to that effect. This one also happens to be one of my first investments, how my wife and I both got started on our first property. When I think back on it, you know, you think about, you know, how, what made it so great? What allowed us to pull it off in such a way that was impressive? I think a lot of it was just out of necessity in that we didn't have a lot of money. We were just getting started. We were really hungry. And so... Because of that, we were looking for all kinds of hacks to take this initial purchase as far as we could. So back in uh, 2010, when we actually, my my wife and I got married in in December, and then in February or March of the next year, a couple, three months later, we'd been shopping for a duplex just because we wanted to move into a certain neighborhood. For those familiar with Austin, it was near Zilker Park, which is a very desirable area. But we did not want to go from a thousand dollar a month apartment rent to a four or five hundred thousand dollar house that would be, you know, three, four times the payment. So we were trying to figure out how can we move to the neighborhood we want to move to for about the same as what we're paying now in rent while also having the opportunity for appreciation and paying down the loan. So the duplex seemed like a a natural strategy because we could buy a duplex for about the same price as a house. So while our payment would be, you know, three or four thousand dollars a month, we could rent out the other side for a couple, you know, maybe two thousand, and then perhaps we could get close to what we were what we were renting for. So we were looking for a couple months and a foreclosure. This is back when there were foreclosures. It was actually a bank foreclosure a duplex in a great pocket close to Zucker Park came up for sale. There were a couple things about it that made it particularly, made us a really good fit for the purchase, I would say. And this comes back to the idea of highest and best. I tell people if you're going to go purchase a property and if you're not the best buyer for it, especially in competitive market, you're probably not going to get it. Or if you do, you're probably going to overpay for it. So you need to find alignment between the asset and between your Goals. What does that mean? I've never heard of that before. So, I'm trying to figure out who, if you're the best buyer for an asset. Right. Is that like because you have the most ideas about how to use it? Right. It just means that your intended use for the asset is optimized. So I'll give an example. So if 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 there was a house, you know, in downtown Austin surrounded by skyscrapers and you're looking to buy a house so your dog can run in the yard and, you know, you can have your picket fence. I'm pretty certain you're not buying that house because some developer is going to come in and pay a number that is far, far greater than the value that you place on that asset. However, if you're the developer in that case, it's a perfect fit. What you do is what that asset is optimized for. So you are the right buyer for that property in that scenario. So in this particular scenario, my wife and I were 
very well aligned with the asset. We wanted the neighborhood. We wanted something that required some work. This one did. And in this particular instance, because it was a government foreclosure, they actually would not allow you to purchase it unless you agreed to live in it. So no invest, all investors were excluded from the purchase. So all law abiding investors. Correct. <laughs> correct. To yes. exclude right. the purchase. That's because correct. what is the enforcement mechanism behind right. knowing whether you live in the house or not? That's true. It might be a little Just sketchy. Mortgage fraud, but, but you know, I'm certain you could hire don't a do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. So I remember the house was actually listed even given that it was a foreclosure and it was somewhat distressed in condition and that the market was very soft in 2010, it was still underpriced. They priced it at like $290,000. And based upon our estimates, it was worth three seventy-five at least on that day. Hmm. Today it's worth far, far more, but on that day it was, it was worth probably three seventy-five. Hmm. So we overpaid. We ended up, Offering three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, effectively three thirty-five. It was three fifty with about fifteen thousand in closing costs. So about forty, what is that? Nine plus forty-four thousand dollars more than asking. And as an agent, I have access to MLS, so I went back just for my own gratification and confirmed that that is the most anyone had ever overpaid for a duplex. <laughs> in the history of the MLS in Austin, Texas, up to that point. I'm jonesing to see how in the world you thought overpaying by $40,000 was a great idea. Absolutely. So our mantra at the time was... Because you're insane. Right. Everybody else would have told you you're absolutely insane. And I was to be told able to that. Do that. I had other yeah. agents calling me afterwards, kind of snickering about what we paid for it. And our mantra was pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And the way we rationalized it was we were paying $335,000 for an asset worth three seventy-five, dollars meaning we're getting $40,000 off of an asset. What's the point in bidding three ten dollars if you don't win it? Because you might be wrong about your highest and best use of the asset, right? You could. Because that would be it, right? And 100% of nothing is still nothing. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like really the piece is saying that like you have to be a little bit cocky to be able to say, I see something here that other people aren't seeing, it's so much so that they're going to make fun of me because of it, right? Absolutely. That puts a dangerous position. I mean, Absolutely. like, I just can't understand, like, I can't emphasize that enough. I'm saying that, like, almost, if you're going to be at the high, if you want safe investments, everybody's going to agree with you. That's right. great. If you really want, if you're really doing something different, everybody's going to think you're wrong. Right. And some of our best investments have been properties that were significantly underpriced, and we blew everyone out of the water with our offer. We wrote an offer that we felt was significantly below market value, but ridiculously more than you asking. Got, you got to tell me that how you're thinking differently about these deals, right? Because before we were talking about the exit strategy being our sure. key piece of what's our worst case. Sure. But you're obviously doing something that's really, really different than other people. Well, I think that here's where the breakdown occurs in most people's logic. Most people think that something is worth what they what is it? Anchoring? They anchor the value of the asset based upon the asking price, which has nothing to do, has nothing to do with anything. What someone offers to sell a property to you should have absolutely no bearing on what you pay for that property. That is their understanding of the highest and best use of the asset value. That is. Which can be totally different than yours. 
Correct. So there it should tell you nothing. If it it's not your set nothing. of assumptions and your highest and best, then throw the it out the window. The only thing that that number should tell you is what the probability is of you getting it. It's a negotiation position at best, but That's it doesn't it. tell you anything about the asset. No. All right. No. I'm with you. So we see plenty of properties that are horribly overpriced, and oftentimes we won't spend our time, you know, we won't even, we won't write an offer. We won't take the time. Because we know that we're so, our number is so far below what they're asking that it's probably a non-starter. So now if it, if it sits on the market for a while and no one else jumps in, then, then we may revisit that. But when we see people that have dramatically underpriced an asset, we know if we move quickly and move to a reasonable number that's a value for us, that we can get it off the market before other people have an opportunity to, to realize what's happening. Very nice. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful thing. So how did that – so you played into buying your first property with the duplex. You overpaid for it dramatically. Right. Laughing stock in the, the, in the eyes, of, right, right, <laughs> of the in, town, absolutely. And, and there's something that you saw in that property, which spitballing here is because you thought that the rents would be produced high enough. Like, is it a cash flow type of situation? You know, on that particular one, it was we were looking at sales comps. It's it was really hard to use rental multiples in that neighborhood because really nice neighborhoods tend to have pretty poor rental multiples. So. It was, we looked at recent sales comps and conditions and we just felt like they had just missed the mark on their estimate of value. At the time, we just wanted a duplex. We wanted to live there. We didn't have a master plan. We just knew that we were going to have an inexpensive place to live and that rents would rise over time on the other side and that it would, it would hopefully cover the taxes and we just have an inexpensive place to live, quite frankly. Yeah. But after, as time went on, we found a number of ways to profit off the property. And before I talk about that, I, I want to mention one more thing. So the way we wrote the offer was $350,000 with $14,000 for the closing costs, which is all of our closing costs, essentially, paid by the seller. And it was a FHA loan for 3.5% down payment. And as a real estate agent, I took a 3% commission at close. So we actually put half a percent down on the home, which is $1,500 to buy a $350,000 duplex. So we're, our cash out of pocket at closing was, was $1,500. So about as close as you can come to a true no money down deal, you know, on the market. And why, what was it that allowed you to negotiate that? I mean, the real estate agent piece I could get, and maybe I have like a friend that's like willing to take like half a point or just hook me up with doing it for me for free or something right. like that, right? But the other pieces of it, like what was it about that that allowed you to negotiate that additional piece with the seller? You know, at the end of the day, the seller doesn't really care what they're paying in closing costs, or at least they shouldn't. They look at their net numbers. So as a, if you're a seller of a property, there's really shouldn't be any difference between someone saying, I'll give you $335,000 Right, you know, with no closing costs, or I'll pay you three fifty and you kick me fifteen grand in closing costs. At the end of the day, they still get the three thirty five. So for us, it was just creating a deal structure that worked for us and minimized our cash out of pocket, so that we could, you know, have additional funds to reinvest. And you just had to get the financing company on board with flying, right? right? Yes, and we have a we have a lender we'd worked with here, and so and I have to say, having a real estate license and being an active realtor does allow you to you know, pull some strings and, and get things done a little more efficiently and faster than you normally would be if you weren't. 
Mm. So we pulled that. We closed on it. We were thrilled to learn we won. Turned out we only won by about $7,000. So we did overpay by $7,000. There was over over a dozen offers written. So we were thrilled to have it. And we rented the other side for more than we thought we would. We, I think our total payment was like $2,600. And we rented the, the unit next door for 1500 So now we were living in our neighborhood of our choice for $1,100 a month. And we were pretty happy at that point until the big turn occurred for us on my 40th birthday, which was in Colorado. We actually rented a vacation rental and had a bunch of friends out. And on the way home from that, weekend, my wife said, you know, we could do that. She said, I, I, uh. she said, I opened all, she said, I opened all the closets in the house. She said, I looked at everything in the storage and how they had everything keyed. And she said, we could do that on our house. And how to love a nosy wife. Yeah, she was, doing po- she was poking around. I, I'm out, I'm out <laughs> snowboarding and she's working up the numbers. So, um, so by the time we got back to Austin, we had hatched a plan. It just, it just so happened that my birthday is about two weeks before South by, which as I mentioned is a really big weekend for us. So we set a goal that within the next two weeks, we would have the house prepared, photographed and rented for South by. And one of the hurdles we had to overcome was where we were going to live because we were renting our unit that we lived in effectively. And so that's when we bought our first trailer that we pull behind the car. So we'd always talked about getting older and having a motor home and, and, uh, and, you know, our, in our retirement years and our golden years. So we kind of accelerated that process and, and bought one uh, locally and, and, uh, figured if we hate it, we'll just turn around and we'll sell it. And yeah, you know, we, we, we ended, I think we ended up booking for the, for South by, it was maybe like a $4,000 booking and, we bought the trailer for like 10,000. So I figured we could sell it for eight or nine and, you know, we'd still be up. Yeah. You know, even if, even if it was oh, a terrible well, experience, up. like back to what you said, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. We get a vacation for free and we, you know, make a couple grand and then we never do it again. Yeah. Well, that's like the upside of doing weird stuff, right? Right. Is that you get to figure out whether it works or not. Right. Like I, I don't ever realize this until I talk to some of my friends about all of the weird stuff that I do. And then, and like, but it's always led to like, but everybody always sees is the end product, right? It's like who you are today, like what you have today, right? Right. But like, what they don't see is like all the iterations that happened in between where you were doing a bunch of funky stuff, trying to figure out like, where are the opportunities at and taking stabs? Absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's like the key piece of your story that I like, I love about it is that it's just like, let's just do, get comfortable with trying some different stuff out. And okay being wrong, right? Like we hear all these stories about it being like all the great pieces. And that's the part of what we're going to continue on today is with, you know, talking more and delving more into like, how does those deals actually work? And then, you know, I can't wait until the future until we get to hear some of the stories about when they don't go so well. Absolutely. Because those are also equally as important, right? Like we got to look at like, you know, if you're only looking at what, what all the winners, then you never actually learned anything because everything just kind of turned out good, right? Absolutely. so where's next in the story, Scott? Like where, so you guys end up doing some cool moves here with, sure. like, and you started, this is where you're dipping your toe into the, wow, short-term rentals, amazing amounts of cash, able to generate in short amount of time. That's what, almost like, what, three months worth, uh, rent of doing that? Yeah. From so, one vacation rental? Yeah. So just, I'll just fast forward to, uh, you know, it's been, so that was 2012 that, uh, we, we, 
we bought the property in 11. 2012 was the first year that we started doing vacation rental on the unit that we lived in. And then the next year, the tenants next door decided to move out. So we thought, you know, this has been going so well. Why don't we go ahead and convert the unit next door to a full-time vacation rental? So we made that switch and it went great. So by 2013, we were largely, I would say that was the first year that we were largely renting both units for vacation rental. So that year we ended up with about a hundred, a little over a hundred thousand dollars worth of revenue and about sixty thousand dollars worth of profit after expenses. And that includes all, all expenses on one asset. And that's, been going on now for over five full years. So the wrap up to that asset, the the short version is we've seen about $60,000 a year in profits times five years, so about $300,000 in cash flows. We've seen about half a million dollars in appreciation on that asset. So the asset that we bought for 350 is worth somewhere around 800 to 850 today. So total return on that $1,500 investment in you know, full disclosure, there was, you know, we did reinvest some of those cash flows were reinvested into upgrades to the property, but those have been, you know, netted out of the returns. So we're roughly $800,000 in return on a $1,500 investment in five years, which I had to put in a spreadsheet before I came down here, but it's, I think it's about so 5,000 percent <laughs> is, yeah. is the number. You know, some, Less of that, it's barely worth my time. I know. Yeah. I know. Why bother? (laughs) So it does set quite a high bar for future investments. There's no doubt, but that's when we're really proud of. And then, you know, we created it together and it was kind of the kickoff to some other vacation rentals that we're, we've purchased and now operating in Austin. And now we're, you know, here we are eight years later. We're both, you know, full time real estate investors in Austin and and loving it. That's fantastic. I just want to go, I mean, to get into the nitty gritty piece of of what this deal is, there's a lot of figures and numbers that you're probably you're thinking about as you're looking at the deal. And those are things that are probably anybody you can Google a lot of that stuff online, right? To be able to say, what's a spreadsheet of how I should analyze this deal? Sure. But that's, in my mind, and I was just going to see if this lines up with you, is that's not where the magic happened. The magic actually happened in this front end piece of I could see an opportunity where everybody else is acting under bad information, that we have insecurity about what is rental income going to look like, what's our multiplier going to be there, and then can able to look at that and say, hmm, there's actually some other criteria that I'm going to look at that's going to give me a better take on what that is and everybody else is looking at. And since I know the Austin area, just spitballing an idea to see if I'm on track here because I really like being right um, <laughs> and guessing at stuff and being right about it is even better. Is like, is you look at it and say like, okay, well, I actually know this is a really high, highly desirous area because I can probably look at what are the, the types of people that are trying to live out here and what are those mean incomes look like. So like, then you can know what is the affordability of it, right? Sure. And, and what other types of things are you looking at besides, you know, just that to be able to tell you that you're going to guess better than everybody else? Right. Well, obviously, I think the two big pieces that we did know on the front end, one was that we were buying a rental type asset. We weren't buying a house. We were buying an asset where we were going to, at the very least, we were going to buy an asset that minimized our out-of-pocket expenses. So I remember at the time, the same, within months of us purchasing that duplex for $350,000, we had, you know, friends who were buying, you know, houses and condos and, and, and other such assets in the Austin area for similar prices. But they were doing it from a consumption standpoint. You know, I hate to bring up the, 
you know, the ant and the grasshopper, you know, but we sacrificed. I mean, I don't have any photos with me, but it was a little bit like a haunted house when we bought it. It looked fantastic. It was, it had like, it was green. It was this <laughs> ugly green on the outside. It had, yeah. um, it had like a, like a Fannie Mae, like they have like this cream colored paint that they yeah. put on every house. I mean, it was, I remember walking our friends through it and telling them, Hey, look what we just paid $350,000 for. And the acting, you know, the, the faces that they managed right. to, to, to keep the, the way they so managed nice. to keep it. It's so, so, <laughs> so, so nice. happy for yeah, y'all. This you is know? great. You guys can, really made a yeah, good decision. Good for y'all. Yeah. So. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, I remember that and I just kept thinking, you know, we've always bought, you know, rental type assets and we like to buy things that are beat up. The reason, you know, I love duplexes for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is that, you know, whenever you go into a neighborhood, you want to be the scourge of the neighborhood. Okay. Okay. You don't ever want the biggest house. You don't ever want the nicest house because consequently everyone around you is pulling you down. The neighborhood is the average of the homes. And so yeah. you can either be it lifted up or you can either be, you know, be drugged down. So duplexes tend to be, at least in Austin, tend to be kind of sprinkled into some of the single family neighborhoods. Okay. So by buying a duplex and a small pocket of duplexes surrounded by houses, which is what this was, we were lifted up by the neighbors around us. Mm. So we knew that we had a lot of potential to go from one of the worst properties in the neighborhood to, you know, kind of living up to the rest of the neighbors. Yeah. So that gives you that extra added piece, right? Because you can see like what are bigger forces that are at play, like what's going on, right? I can know like what is the neighborhood going to be doing. I know that people are going to misvalue this because they don't understand what the incomes are here of what they can pay for rent. Mm -hmm. They're seeing something that's already ugly. They don't want to do the work to get into it, right? Like I think you'll see guys like Grant Cardone talk a lot about that. Like they'll ask the question whenever they go into it. They always see multiple properties, right? And they're trying Mm -hmm. to see multiple properties in the same type of asset class. And they're asking themselves, why is everybody else not wanting this? Asset, right? Because that goes back to your piece. Where do the assumptions they're making that are wrong or right about like what's going on here? And that's where the information comes in. Is that the assumptions everybody else was making is I don't want to do the work into it. I don't know what the rents are. They're probably not that great because this house is ugly as hell. Right. And so, all right, I'm not going to really, I'll pay a little bit more than the asking, you know, but I'm not going to pay what my true value is, right? Because a bunch of people bid more, right? Right. You just happen to be the most. Right. So it's not like you were the only one that even saw the opportunity. No. No, no right. it took a lot of it took a lot of things came into play that allowed us to get it. But yeah, forced appreciation is is a big component when we look at houses. We like to buy houses where we know that by putting a little money in we can create equity quickly. Yeah. Because that that offsets a lot of other risk yeah. within the investment. So yeah. That's a beautiful thing. It was. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome, Scott. Is there anything else that we want to talk about with that asset or with that investment or about how you're using the rental incomes or any insights that you have about like the deals that work with that? Sure. Yeah. I could touch on a, on a few things just with uh, vacation rental, you know, in general. I guess I would just say that, you know, check your local regulations with respect to vacation rentals. It's, it's a moving target in most, most cities. Austin is has a number of regulations limiting the density of vacation rentals. So don't assume that you can do whatever you want with that property. The nice thing about this particular property and and in in the Austin regulations is they will allow you for a property that's homesteaded that you live in 
and that's homesteaded, they will allow you to uh, get a license. You know, so it's kind of a, you get your first license, no problem. Mm. But when you start acquiring additional properties, there's right now a moratorium on licenses for any rentals less than 30 days. So you just need to know what you can and can't do within the laws of your locale to on the vacation rental side of things. So go in kind of with your eyes wide open, you know, Find a real estate agent who's familiar with those with those rules and regulations, so you don't uh, buy something that you can't you know utilize for the the reason that you purchased it. But we continue to put money back into our vacation rentals, constantly improving them. It's a great way to it's like you know, instant gratification. You can put a few thousand dollars into countertops. You know this weekend you can photograph it. You know the next day, and you can upload those photos and instantly reap the rewards of you know, mm. additional bookings and higher rental rates. So we've really enjoyed it, and we are actually as partly as a result of the regulations from the city, we're starting to move more towards a uh, what I'll call a you know midterm rental. People call them corporate rentals, but you know there's short-term rental where people typically are doing uh, you know nightly, maybe weekends or a week or two, and then a, more of a traditional long-term rental where people rent for a year at a time. We're starting to kind of hit that middle market, trying to go where, where there's a little less competition into kind of a fully furnished, you know, two, three, four, sometimes we even get six-month rentals. And we do far better than we would on a year-type rental a year or longer, but we also end up with less regulation, less turnover, and less uh, management than a, you know, short-term or like a weekend rental. Hmm. So. Well, it sounds like I know that you do some fundraising that you do for a lot of the work that you'll do and some fund management as well. Are you guys, do you guys ever look to recruit or to train new investors? Is that something that people wanted to reach out to you that you would be interested in, you know, facilitating that conversation with how people should be using the real estate or, you know, potentially get, how can they get a hold of you to be able to put sure. money with you if they want to? Sure. Well, the easiest way to get a hold of me would be on my website, which is, uh, you know, www.realtystake.com. Realty, R-E-A-L-T-Y, stake, S-T-A-K-E dot com. I'm always willing to talk to people about, you know, what their investment goals are and answer questions. And I've spent a lot of time investing in Austin. So that's, that's really where my, where my market expertise lies, but certainly have, I can add to the conversation and in, in, you know, just about any market when it comes to things like the vacation rentals and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, feel free to shoot me an email or drop me a call. Yeah, and if you find something that Scott doesn't know in an asset, please let me know because I haven't been able to find anything. This guy's been around the Austin market with all different types of asset classes and all different levels of investments. I personally know that he's fundamentally involved in many multi-million dollar funds, so he's very humble with the type of expertise that he brings, but always try to connect either with him or somebody like him to help shortcut your way into learning about what's going to work for you in a strategy. Because just tell, connecting with somebody that is a professional investor like uh, Scott Sutherland or myself or CPAs that are also real estate investors are the fastest way to be able to learn what's going to work for your exact situation because they've seen 10,000 scenarios. So they're willing to, they can quickly get down to say, here's the three that you were going to work for you, right? You know, in his case, it was this, you know, how can I get into a property and then turn that into like rental income and I don't have any money to be able to get into it and if you came to him today, that would be something that he'd be like, all right, well, here's what options are actually like, you know, because the landscape is always changing. Yeah. Right? And if, if I could add one more, just I think I still believe that buying a duplex, if, if you're new to the game and you want to, you know, you're looking to build wealth, you're looking to learn about real estate. I don't know of any better way to get started than buying a duplex and moving into it yourself. There's so many 
financing options for you. It's a great way to learn the game. You have one tenant only to manage, and they're right next door. That can be good and bad, but it's usually good. I can tell you that everyone, there's a lot of what ifs. You know, it's what if the toilet gets stopped up or what if, you know, the next door neighbor doesn't drop his rent off and then I have to deal with this situation and talk to this person or, you know, but I can tell you that it's it's never as complicated or or stressful as you might think and that the best way to learn is to jump in with both feet and take the first step. And if you buy a good asset that you can make some improvements to, in an area that's trending well, the risk is very low and you'll learn a ton and you'll probably do very well. Yeah. I can't emphasize that enough with like how, what you're talking about now, which is saying like if you're buying something that's automatically going to cash flow and offset your own expenses, then it's almost like there's impossible to lose unless you're way overpaying, right? For what it's going to be. So, you know, always be smart, uh, of course, you know, but there's the duplexes are a beautiful thing. Don't start with a transmission and auto repair shop that has the walls falling down like I did. That's Speaking a, from personal that's, experience. That's a very, very painful way of stacking cinder blocks on the weekends while you're reading through torts. So thanks, Scott, for today um, coming in. And this was fantastic. I hope everybody learned something. I know I did, uh, especially about like that. The way you're thinking about deals, I think it's really cool because that's a really piece that I don't think we we talk a lot about numbers, but we don't really speak a lot about what's really going on with us as individuals behind it. And to me, that's a piece to say, okay, it's cool to geek out on what the actual numbers are like, but you know, we really actually need to understand what's going on with us as people. Where your motivation so, is. And hopefully there's other people out there who come are coming from a kind of a similar mindset and can connect with, you know, those, those challenges that we fought our way through and think like, you you know, wow, I think that same way or I have those same concerns. And, you know, it's just a matter of getting out there and, you know, taking a chance on something. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what we're all about here on this podcast is really about trying to say, like, do these stories make sense to you? Is the way that we're thinking about deals something that makes sense to you as a listener into it? And if you do, then these are the lessons that we've learned from ourselves as professionals and advising tons of other people. And so you can see from our insights of, you know, hundreds of thousands of times, even though this is your first time, the story is the same. Like, how do you feel and what is that going through? You know, what are the challenges, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I heard someone say that, you know, people tend to overestimate what they can accomplish in a year and underestimate what they can accomplish in five. And that really feels true after kind of our journey through the real estate investment world. Like it's, it's been eight years since we really jumped in with Ernest, but I, you know, I think back to our start. I remember days where we were so hungry to make it work and so just determined I remember times even, you know, where we would get a booking request and they, they would say, we want to check in, in in three hours. And this was the house that we were actually living in. And we would throw everything into the closets and, and you know, lock it all up and clean in the house ourselves and get out the door. You know, and I, and I, you know, now we've got, you know, we have people taking care of all that stuff and doing all the prep and it's all, you know, much at a much higher level. But um, but it makes me realize just how far we've come in a, effectively a short period of time, what seems like quite a short time. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's awesome. And I want to also emphasize the fact that people, it's like that if you read books like The Lean Startup or anybody that's in the startup world, it's those types of actions. It's not because you would choose to live that way. It's because that the speed you want to move requires you to do stuff that is, we're just going to make it work. And then so that way we can figure it out as we go along. And the start- 
startup community, they talk about that as being like iterations of a product or what is your speed to market with whatever you're creating. So like, so really from my perspective as a, as an entrepreneur is when I look at and hear that story, what I'm really saying is like, oh, this is actually an insight of what happens if you have a startup mentality to say, we're going to test a bunch of things. We're going to find out which ones that work. Boom. Now we put all the energy and capital into it. And that's where we have massive growth as an investor instead of saying, okay, well, we're just going to do these really, you know, I'm just going to buy a house that I can put a piece of paint on. No, right. okay. Well, if you're going to do that, you're going to really cap what your growth is, right? right. If you really want to grow, you got to be willing to have things be a little, little right. messy and do a little bit of stuff that's uncomfortable. Well, and back to the 70 30, you know, every time we had an opportunity come before us where we felt like we knew how to do 70% of it, we took it. Even if it wasn't, you know, quote, in the plan, it wasn't a the type of investment that we were intending to pursue. If it was something we hadn't done before, but we felt like we knew enough about it that we could pull it off, we did it. And we did it because we wanted to figure out if we'd like to do it and we knew we'd learn something. And I think that's paid a lot of dividends because, you know, all those skills, one day you'll find yourself standing where this opportunity comes up and you think, wow, I already know how to do most of that or all of that. And if you don't jump out there and learn new things and take, you know, go after new opportunities, then you'll never have those skills when the day comes and that opportunity arrives. Yeah. And I just want to cap and recap and end on that note, which is to like know what your down ultimate realistic downside risks are. And if you can afford them, then take the risk. Learn what the new skill is going to be. And it might not be something that necessarily you're going to use today or even tomorrow, but now you have that extra club. And when it's ready to be able to do it, you'll see the opportunities that other people aren't seeing because you'll have the experiences that they don't have. And that's where you're making the big bucks, right? I love it. Thanks, Scott, for coming in today. I hope everybody, just remind everybody the name of your website, just in case they want to get in hold of you. Sure. It's www.realtystake.com, R-E-A-L-T-Y-S-T-A-K-E. Yeah. And one of these days we're going to be, I'm going to make you get and start up a fund management with me over here. So (laughs) we're going to get that going. Thank you for coming in and we'll see you again soon. All right. Great. Thanks. That's all for this best deal episode. And I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. When investments go good, they can go great. Your legendary best deal could be your next one. So keep at it. Thank you for joining us, and if you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in those sleeping masses for what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day, and I'll see you again soon.